Welcome to the Nations Church Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. If you were here last week for Chrissy's sermon, Selfless Life. Yeah, if you weren't here, please watch that on YouTube. Such an incredible um, message. Today, I want to take you to an account that may be well known to you if you've been around church for a long time. But it's an account in the Gospels that is recorded in all four Gospels. They recorded the same account, slightly nuanced differences in the writing, because they're obviously different, um, written by different people. But we're going to go to Luke 9. So Luke's version of this account in Luke chapter 9, reading from verse 10. Who's ready for the Word of God? All right, let's go, reading from verse 10. And the apostles, I'm low-key nervous about, about going to dinner with whoever the new... Just, just thought I'd say, just be kind to me, okay? Be kind to me in the dinner. Just help conversation along. I'm an introvert. Luke 9 verse 10. And the apostles, when they had, don't ask me doctrinal questions, okay? It just it makes me nervous. Luke 9 verse 10. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them, no vegans either, okay? No, no, no vegans. You cannot come to dinner with me if you're a vegan. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. My mind is crazy right now. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. When the day began to wear away, in other words, it's late in the day, the 12 disciples came and said to him, send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. Are you crazy, Jesus? For there were about 5,000 men. Then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. Can we give Jesus a big shout of praise for the incredible text? I know that for those of you that have been a Christian a really long time, you know this story of this account of feeding the 5,000 very well. Today I want to speak to you on the thought, miracle hands. Miracle hands. Show me your hands. Turn to your neighbor and say, you have miracle hands. You just don't know it yet. You have miracle hands. All right. So let me give you a synopsis of the story here. It's been a long day in ministry. And the disciples were ready to go somewhere quiet to knock off for the day. How many of you love the end of the day when you can knock off work? Like, it's the favorite time of the day for a lot of people. You know, you know what I mean? And so the disciples, yeah, I don't know about you, but like when it comes to like five or six o'clock in the evening, your mind already starts to go to all the relaxing things you're going to do. Some of you start fantasizing about the udi you're going to put on. Yeah, yeah, that, that meal you're going to have in front of the TV and the old boots you're going to put on. They start, the disciples were thinking about that right now, right? End of the day. They'd run out of time and, 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 and um, you know, Jesus saying, all right, boys, let's just go to a deserted place. But because... The crowd was so hungry to hear from Jesus. They tracked down Jesus and the disciples and they followed them to that deserted place. Now you can almost imagine the eye-rolling moment of the disciples. I mean, it's the end of the day and and there's still so many crowds and and Jesus sees the crowds, has compassion on them. You can almost hear the disciples, the cogs turning in their head. It's like, oh Jesus, how many more services do you need to run? It's like, we're tired. We're done for the day, right? And then they say something which seemingly... 
like represents the views of all of the people. How many of you know someone that likes to speak up and when they speak up, they like, they apparently represent everybody? Do you know, um, um, Pastor Ken, I'm, um, you know, there's a lot of us that think the music's too loud. A lot of us. A lot of us. Do you, do, do you know what I mean? There's always one in the crowd, right? Well, the disciples said, Jesus, um, you know, we've had, we've had a, uh, we've, we've talked, we've done a survey in the crowd and um, they're all hungry and they all need to go to the villages to go and buy their own food, Jesus. We've had a survey. We've had, we've come to a bit of a consensus. It's the end of the day. Please send them away. To which Jesus replies, he says this, you feed them. That is not the response we were looking for, Jesus. That is not the response that makes any sense at all. In fact, the disciples were hoping that Jesus would agree with them because it makes complete sense. There's no food here, just a few loaves and a few fish, thousands of people, right? There's nowhere to get any food. There's no KFC outlets. There's no food court here. Send them away. And yet Jesus says, you feed them. You feed them. I think... Jesus wants the church to begin to rise up again with the responsibility that we have, not just to bring people to Jesus, but to facilitate their ongoing, sustained encounter with Him long after they've met Him. Come on, somebody. And here is the thing, right? When it comes to facilitating or serving people's encounter with Jesus, we can actually have a very carnal or very temporal view or way of looking at it. How many of you realize that us, this, the church, is actually a supernatural entity? Four of you, come on. Us, this, is a supernatural spiritual entity. This might just be in your mind, a natural gathering. But you need to understand that what goes on here, every time we gather, people freely, willingly jump in their cars, come and gather to worship and honor God, learn from the word, have community. This is actually a spiritual, supernatural thing that's going on. This is his ecclesia, his church. Come on now, somebody. And so when you think about it that way and think about how we view serving each other, facilitating the encounter of God for each other, we can actually have a very carnal view to a very spiritual entity. We can have a very natural way of looking at something that is incredibly spiritual and supernatural. Because I think for so many of us, this is how we consider serving. We look at our lives, we look at our schedules, and then we think about, oh man, we've got 29 dance recitals our daughters need to be driven to every week, the project we have on at work, we've got a landscaping project we've got going on at home, then that ill elderly father we've got to visit twice a week, then we consider all the different things we've got going on, and the holiday we've got to plan, and then, oh yeah. And then we think about all of the time that we we've exhausted doing all the other things, then we look at our schedules and think, okay, what can we manage to give at the end of the week? And then when we consider what we can manage at the end of the week, then maybe we'll go to the booth somewhere and sign up and volunteer. We have a very natural way of looking at a spiritual entity. The disciples were doing exactly the same thing. It was the end, they run out of daylight, no food, 12 disciples, 5,000 men, plus women, plus children. The most sensible thing, Jesus, is to send them home. And yet Jesus says, you feed them. He was trying to turn this into a learning or teaching moment. He was trying to teach the disciples that true service is not 
to consider what you can manage, but to step into a supernatural grace of what God can do through you when you say yes to facilitating other people's encounter with Jesus. Come on, somebody say amen. How many of you know that if if left to our own natural calculations and estimations of how much we can manage to give of our time, our talents, our energy, and our personal resource, you will never serve Jesus. If left to your own calculations of what you can manage at the end of your busy week of your seemingly very important life, if you, if, you, if you were to calculate all of the time that you had left at the end of that to give any of that to the service of the body of Christ, none of us would be serving Jesus, right? And if you happen to be unemployed or have time, have margin, have talent, have energy, have resources to serve the church, there's nothing miraculous about your willing and volunteer of the few hours that you might ha- already have because you have nothing else to do. Can I suggest to you today, all over Australia, the retired, the part-time, the employed, the part-time employed, the unemployed, the ones that have Saturdays off, Christian or not, are happily volunteering at school canteens, ass kick, umpiring netball, coaching softball, cutting oranges for the halftime under 13 soccer club. There is nothing spiritual or remarkable about the volunteering of your time. You don't have to be Christian to do it because it's already happening all over Australia. There is nothing notably Christian or remarkable about volunteering to help out with the resources we do have. We don't need God to do that. So if you're currently serving out of what you already have, please keep doing that. That's very good. That's your, that is your, your being a good citizen. But I want to suggest to you today that if you actually step into a supernatural space of not really having that much resource or time, but you're saying, yes, God, I will give of you what little I have. Would you do more with the little I have, that is truly supernaturally serving in a supernatural entity. Come on, somebody give Jesus a big shout of praise. So true supernatural serving is when you serve out of the time, ability, and energy that you don't have. It was a miracle that the feeding of the 5,000 was in fact these 12 tired guys with no daylight hours, no money, no energy left, and five loaves and two fish. And here is the thing you need to understand. Your Bible English translators would have put on the heading there, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Well, it's not really accurate because Jesus didn't feed them. The disciples did. They just gave him the bread and the fish. Jesus blessed it, broke it, put it back into the hands of the disciples. And it was the disciples that one family at a time had to go feed them, had to go serve them, had to facilitate them staying a little longer with Jesus. Let me ask you today, have you allowed your ordinary hands to become miracle hands? Or have you just considered your ordinary hands with whatever time you had and just doing what you could and with the little that you got, that's your little two hours in a week that you volunteer. It's time for us to transition our ordinary hands into becoming miracle hands. When we get to the end of the week and go, man, I don't know how I managed that. It must have been the grace of God. If all that we do is give of Jesus what we already have or can manage, you don't need to be a Christian to do that. I remember being year 11 and 12, I was actually on the student council. So I had a little bit to do with Jenny, the canteen lady. Not her real name, I'm protecting her original identity. But Jenny sounds like a good canteen lady's name, so I picked that. Jenny, the canteen lady. She was at my local high school. I was on a student council, and this woman, she was something else, man. She was strong as an ox. She could carry those 40-kilo pallets full of food. Man, she was amazing. Now, Jenny, she was, everybody loved Jenny. She swore like a sailor, smoked like a chimney. She was 
at the time on her third marriage. She was self-confessed atheist, right? Right? But everybody loved her. She had a heart of gold. She gave up so much of her time volunteering at the school canteen. The entire school, she was the, probably the most well-loved personality in the entire high school. Right? And when I began to think about her and her volunteering of her time, she was doing more for the school as an atheist than so many Christians are prepared to do for their own local church. Everybody loved Jenny. What am I trying to say? You don't need to be a Christian to volunteer whatever time and margin you have to do something you already think is worthwhile or fulfilling for you. What am I trying to say? True service is actually to step into what the disciples were stepping into in this moment here. I don't have much time. It's the end of the day. I'm very tired. I have no resource for this. And yet Jesus says, you feed them. That is truly serving under a supernatural grace where you can turn your ordinary hands into miracle hands. Four of you are convinced. Come on now. I know you don't like hearing what I'm about to say, but this is actually a spiritual discipleship moment for the church. What am I saying to you? I'm saying to you, you don't need to be Christian to volunteer anywhere in community. You don't need to be. You just don't. You just need to have a bit of free time. But you do need to have the heart of Christ to willingly serve people that you maybe have no time for, maybe have no grace for, maybe have no resource for, but when you step into it and say, yes, it's amazing what Jesus can do because that's the kind of thing that gives rise to the miraculous. That's the kind of thing that gives rise to powerful testimonies. When you hear testimonies, powerful, life-changing, serving testimonies, you don't hear about things people can do in their own strength and in their own volition. We don't send film crews over to your house for you to talk about how last night I came home, put my Udi on, sat on the couch, clocked off with my bag of Doritos and binge watched Netflix. No one, we don't send film crews over to your house to film that. What we send film crews over to your house for you to testify over is when you say things like, man, I was going through an absolutely crazy time in my life. Mum was in hospital, gastro swept through our house while my husband was away on site. I had like two hours sleep. I nearly rang my team on a Sunday to pull out of kids' church because, because I, I just didn't think I could manage, but I got here anyway, and you wouldn't believe it, that on Sunday there were two kids there from my children's school that came to church. I managed to connect with their parents. We started talking. At the end of the Sunday, I led them in prayer to receive Jesus and in their hearts. They started crying. I started crying, but wait, there's more. This week, they told me that they were so close to ending their marriage that, that, that because of Jesus, they decided this week they were going to get some counseling, work at restoring their marriage. All glory to God. That's the kind of testimony. And that's a real one. Someone's actually told me that. Ordinary hands becoming miracle hands. You don't need to be a Christian to cut oranges at your kids' under-13 soccer team on a Saturday. That's you volunteering, doing your civic duty. But there is something about a Christian that decides, I don't have much to give, but whatever little I've got to give, I'm going to allow the grace of God to create a miracle story out of this. And if the disciples actually got what they wanted from Jesus, sending them all away, we wouldn't be reading four times over in all four Gospels of the crowd getting fed out of the hands of the disciples. See, for so many of us, we think that this is like a club. We equate it to like 
some community group. I know that's what the local government likes to call us, but this is his ecclesia. We are his church. We are his body. We are his bride. Supernatural things need to be going on here, not natural stuff. We need to have stories that, that people should look at your life and go, man, Matt Keezing, how do you how do you manage all of that? You should be able to say, man, I'm not really sure, but I've got this Jesus who gives me the grace to do it. That's the kind of thing that will, will make the world sit up and listen. All through scripture, we see Jesus commending people, not for doing natural things, but for doing things way above and beyond what they could do in the natural. It's noteworthy to know that Jesus in scripture does not record people doing things within their means, but always records people doing things beyond their means when they step into from ordinary hands into miracle hands. We get to decide every weekend, every day, do we want our hands to stay unmiraculous, ordinary, without testimony, or do we want our hands to actually become miracle hands? The disciples that day wanted their hands to stay ordinary. They just wanted to eat the five loaves, two fish among themselves. They wanted to send the crowd away. They wanted us to not have a story to be recorded in the Gospels, but Jesus had a different idea. If you would consider that original gathering, that crowd of 5,000 as the beginnings of the ecclesia, the beginnings of the kind of church Jesus was already seeing, He was trying to teach the disciples a valuable discipleship lesson. Christian discipleship is this, understanding we need to grow from being Christians and ask God to do things for us to disciples that let God do things through us. Somebody shout amen. Amen. This account in Luke 9 of feeding the 5,000 was a key moment of maturation for the disciples. They were actually being matured as they were going along. This moment of recognizing what Jesus could do through their hands, way above and beyond what they could manage, what was their natural ability. Because maturity is this, seeing the potential of what God can do through you in spite of what you're going through. For me, I love using my life as an excuse why I shouldn't be doing all of the things God wants me to do. I got a lot going on in my life. I got a disabled kid. I got a marriage I need to keep going. I need a house I need. I got a house I need to pay off. I got a, I got a busy life. I got lots of things to do. All of the things that I want to tell God why I can't be used by Him are the very things Jesus says, well, why don't you say yes anyway and watch me give you the grace to do it. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 6. See, Paul himself had every excuse not to serve Jesus. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 3. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry or our serving will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance in troubles, in hardships, and in distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Wow. How many of you feel challenged? In spite of all of these things, Paul is saying, I serve Jesus anyway because I don't want quitting mentality to be a stumbling block to the church in Corinth. I don't want people to say, oh, oh, just because it got a little bit hard for Paul, you know, he pulled out. 
Just because, oh, things got a little bit. And I'm not talking about just a little bit of hardship. He's talking about beatings and imprisonments and riots and troubles and distresses and hunger. Come on now. We don't, know, we don't even know what it's like to be hungry. Hey, we feed people for heartbeat and they still don't turn up. Right? There is this desire in God for us to step into a place where we say yes to Him in spite of what we can't manage. I'm not asking you to do things in your own strength. I'm asking you to maybe explore the possibility that you have a supernatural God. And then come at the end of the day, you go, oh man, I don't know how I managed all of that. It must have been you, God. Come on now. God has made available for us a grace to serve Him regardless of what we are going through. And yet so many of us aspire to live a life where we do as little as we can outside of what we can manage. And I promise you, God gets no glory in that kind of life. God gets no glory in that kind of life. And it's not just the multiplication of resource of five loaves and two fish. I think the greater miracle that happened here in Luke chapter 9 and across all four Gospels was the multiplication of strength and energy and capacity. How many of you feel absolutely cooked at the end of the day? Four of you. The rest of you got heaps of energy. Come on. How many of you like get to six o'clock and you're like, you feel like someone shot you? You're like sliding down your chair. Right? What's miraculous about this is that 12 guys managed to feed 5,000 men plus women plus children. Now, if you were an event coordinator, Hannah, you would know that you're significantly understaffed. Right? You would send Tamara up on the stage to recruit more volunteers because 12 guys feeding 5,000 men plus women plus children is a ridiculous ratio. It is absolutely impossible. What was Jesus trying to teach you? He was trying to teach that there is a transition moment for every disciple to go from ordinary hands to miraculous hands. That, there, that, that there's something about a believer that understands that, 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 that God can actually do so much more in the supernatural if we actually give him a chance to actually do it. But if we never give him a chance to, if the disciples actually got their way and said, send all the people home, God, they would have never experienced what it's like to transition from ordinary hands into miraculous hands. You will never experience the miraculous in your serving if all you do is volunteer out of what you think you can manage. And friend, you don't need to be a Christian to do that. It's happening all over Australia today already. You'll never go on a mission trip. You'll never minister to kids. You'll never reach out to someone. You'll never commit to showing up every weekend to serve. You'll never experience God giving you the grace to, to do it all in spite of your sick mom and gastro running through your family and the small business having staffing issues and your kitchen reno delays. You'll never experience God actually doing something in your life in spite of all the things that are happening in your life. Paul says, I commend our service. I refuse to be a stumbling block to the other believers. I refuse to quit in spite of the persecutions, the hardships, the trial, the beatings, the imprisonment, because this is what the supernatural ecclesia looks like. Somebody give Jesus a big shout of praise. You were designed, you were designed to not live in the natural, but to live in the supernatural. The deception of the devil to every Christian is that he wants to keep you living an unremarkable life by telling you to live only according to what you can manage. And in that unremarkableness, you never experience the power, the beauty, the testimony of the supernatural empowering, right? And when you do that long enough in your life, your Christianity takes a very ordinary 
jaded look. And that's why he comes and waves the appeal of the world in front of you. And suddenly, the excitement of the world, even though it's temporary, starts to draw your eyes. Because the very thing that should be exciting and glorious, filled with testimony, filled with the miraculous, filled with things you didn't expect, you refuse to step into. Come on now, somebody. And so he keeps you in this unremarkable Christian life. And after a couple of years, three, four, five years, it's unsustainable. Suddenly, all the excitement of the world starts to, starts to become much more appealing. Come on now. Right? And then we start to think to ourselves, I'm getting nothing out of my Christianity. There is so much to explore. There is so much to explore. There are thousands of people to feed out of the little that you've got. Where is your story? Come on now, somebody. You know that Jesus really wants to teach people something when he does it twice. This was the account of feeding of the 5,000. There's also a secondary account of Jesus repeating the lesson in Matthew 15 and Mark chapter 8. This time is the feeding of the 4,000 men plus women plus children. And this time it was with seven loaves and a few fish. And you know, it's like if you were the disciples, the disciples repeated the same mistake. Jesus was tired, sent them all away. It's like the same conversation. Did you not learn from the first one? And yet Jesus says to them again, you feed them. And this is what I love about both these accounts. The disciples did what they didn't think they could manage. And yet they pulled off the biggest food service hospitality event recorded in human history twice over, right? I don't know how they did that because they had run out of daylight. So they must have served at supernatural speed and capacity. But this is what I love about both these accounts. Both these accounts record that at the end of the event, they picked up 12 basketfuls in the first account and seven basketfuls. What does God want to remind us of? That if you were to truly step into doing things you don't think you have time, can't manage to do, don't have capacity or resource to do, the promise is there'll be more than enough for you and your family. I need to be home, I need to be more with my kids. Your kids are gonna live in the overflow of what God is doing in your life. Come on, somebody. We must never serve God to gain something back. This is not what this account is about, but it's an assurance to you that in spite of what's going on in your life, this is the supernatural life. This is discipleship stuff. This is taking you from Jenny the canteen lady level to like disciple level. Come on, right? This is elevating your thinking about your own life in this space of, Chrissy spoke about it so beautifully, the selfless life. How do you step into that? When you see the ecclesia as a supernatural spiritual entity, you then step into it and partner with it and saying, God, give me the grace to do something I ordinarily don't have time or talent or ability or margin to manage with all that's going on in my life. And as you do, you give of your quote unquote, few loaves and two fish to God and see what God can do. See what God can do. I had no idea that 19 years ago with the little time that I had running, you know, raising a young family with just lots of crazy stuff going on, we just took whatever time that we could, planted a little church. God did some, we're stepping into the ecclesia of today because somebody decided, come on now, that God could do so much more than just what we could manage. This church wouldn't be here today if Chrissy and I considered what we could manage. The generations to come won't be the generations to come if you keep considering just what you can manage. We love God. We serve Him, but this is His idea. And if you understand the grace that is available to you, 
Grace is not needed where you can manage it all yourself. So if you're looking for a life that you can manage, don't blame God when you see no grace poured out on your life. But it's only when you step out, Jesus, five loaves, two fish. That's when you step into the grace. Come on. You follow me so far? You know what I love about Scripture is that Scripture always challenges the typical norm. When I read the Bible, it always challenges the way that I think. I think quite naturally sometimes. I think quite logically, quite carnally, if you like, quite temporal. But the Bible always speaks of things that go beyond the supernatural. The Bible tells of an Old Testament character by the uh, name of Abraham. How many of you have heard of Abraham? Abraham, he was, he was a unique character. Abraham so desired, him and his wife so desired to have uh, children, but they couldn't. So they were unable to, and for, you know, right into their old age, well beyond childbearing age, they felt like that window had closed, but God obviously gave them a prophetic promise that they'll be the, Abraham will be the father of many nations. I don't know if you know that can be either a very cruel promise to an old guy that's not been able to have children with his wife, or it could be something very supernatural, Right? So God promises Abraham, Abraham, I know you're old, but I'll make you a father of many nations. Cut a long story short, Abraham and Sarah finally conceive and they bear a child by the name of Isaac. How many of you know one son does not make many nations? So the son needs to find a wife. Isaac grows up, he's now a young adult, it's time to find a wife. Now how many of you know, um, if you've got young adult children right now, how many of you have young adult children? How many of you are already praying for a great spouse for them? Four of you, the rest of you guys don't care? Come on, how many of you are praying for... How many of you praying for a great spouse for your young adult children? They're single. They're saying, saying, God, you know, right? Abraham was doing the same. Only Abraham lived in the desert. Um, there's not much choice in the desert. I always have a bit of a chuckle when, when young adult guys go, oh, there's not, there's, there's not very many great girls at church. And the girls go, oh, there's just no, no nice guys at church. Try living in the desert. You choose between the camel or the cactus. Right? So Abraham was in that conundrum. Like, oh, oh my gosh, how do I be a father of many nations? My son Isaac needs a wife. So he sends his servant, along with Isaac, to go and look for said wife in town, right? Genesis chapter 24, verse 15. And this is really what the, uh, the servant prayed because, you know, he didn't know what else to do. It's like, how do I know which is the right girl? He said, God, um, um, this is how I know this girl that I meet is going to be the right girl for Isaac is that she's going to give me water and then she's also going to offer to water my camels also. Right? Verse 15. Before he had even finished praying. Wow. That's a bit of encouragement for somebody. God already knows what you want before you even finish praying. He saw a young woman named Rebekah coming out with her water jug on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, who was the son of Abraham's brother Nahor, and his wife Rebekah was very beautiful. Uh-oh, let's go. I don't know how truly beautiful she was because there's not much to compare with, but you know, Rebekah was very beautiful and old enough to be married, but she was still a virgin. She went down to the spring, filled her jug and came up again, running over to where the servant said, please give me a little drink of water from your jug. The first test. Yes, my Lord, she answered. Have a drink 
awesome first test. And then she quickly lowered her jug from her shoulder and gave him a drink. When she had given him a drink, she then volunteers this. She says, I'll draw water for your camels too until they've had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jug into the watering trough and ran back to the well to draw water for all his camels. <sighs> Abraham's servant went, <gasps> did you see that? She's the one, she's the one. <sighs> see, in Middle Eastern culture, whenever a woman asks, whenever a man asks a woman for a drink of water, she was obliged, it was part of her duty to serve. She couldn't refuse. It makes sense to you guys. So when, when, when the servant said, please give me a little drink of water, she said, yes, sir, this is your drink. She was obliged to do that. It's very different to today's day and age. If you ask a woman in Australia for a drink of water, she'd go, what's wrong with your legs? <laughs> What'd your last slave die off? <laughs> Not like that in biblical times. The Bible were different days. And then, and then, what she does next was way above and beyond what she could manage. She says, I'll water all of your camels too. No one asked her to do that. The servant didn't ask her to do that. She had no idea the servant was praying that someone would say that. Come on, you out there, right? And the Bible goes on to tell us that Abraham's servant brought with him 10 camels. Now, if you look up Wikipedia, you would know that every Arabian camel has the capacity to drink about 125 to 130 liters of water in one sitting when they're dry. So do the maths. 1,300 liters of water. The pitcher that she would have had on her shoulder, the jug, if it was typical of what it was of that particular era, would have held, in our today's estimation, three and a half to four liters of water. That's what they felt what a woman's shoulder could manage as she fetched water. Make sense to you guys? So you do the maths. Four liters to the water trough. Pour it in. The camel's going... Mm, mm. Right? Eight liters, all the way to 1300 liters. Now, I'm not an unfit guy, but I don't know very many athletic dudes that could finish 50 reps of that. Leave alone fill the trough to 1300 liters. See, what is the scripture trying to teach us? When you say yes to what you can't do, there is a supernatural grace that comes on your life to do what you couldn't do. Come on, make sense to you. And it looks like at face value that all that this was was a pretty girl overestimating her water fetching abilities. That's what it looks like. This woman had no idea that when she said, I'll water all of your 10 camels too, sir. I don't know whether she'd calculate it in her mind. She was a Middle Eastern girl. She understood how much camels can drink. But there was something on the inside of her that says, you know, I, I want to serve beyond my ability. She had no idea that Abraham's servant was already praying, God, give me a woman. So it looks like a woman that was doing more than she should be doing. But God was actually looking for a woman that would birth nations. I want to change the world, God. Well, 
All I want to do what I can manage. God, use me. Help me find my purpose. Well, the crowd's there. Give me your five loaves and two fish. Again, real quiet now. I'm going to talk to this side because they're a lot rowdier. <laughs> you see where I'm getting at? This is not some manipulative drive to get you to sign up to anything. You can leave today not doing anything with your life that's completely between you and God. What I'm trying to say to you is that maybe what God is doing here is a supernatural spiritual entity. And it's time for the church to go from Jenny the canteen lady level of thinking about volunteering with the time that we do have to actually stepping into a discipleship of saying, God, I don't know what I've got that could be even of value to you, but I'm going to water those camels. Because I feel in God to do this and I'm going to commit, submit my capacity, my strength, whatever I've got. If, even if all that I've got is the capacity to shake somebody's hand, because I'm not very well these days and I'm a bit more frail, is shake somebody's hand as they come through the doors of church. Better is one day in your house. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than a thousand days in my Udi watching Netflix. Where is the heart of God's people again that will come back and say, I want to be part of the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and 4,000 and Rebecca watering the camels can't just stay in the Bible. It's going to come alive in me also. Because we can live our lives going from ordinary hands day to day or say, God, these ordinary hands can become miracle hands. Can we give Jesus a big shout of praise? Thanks for listening to the Nations Church podcast. For more info, please visit nationschurch.com.